Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Martin Pochtaruk, president of Helion. Helion is a U.S. and Canadian manufacturer of solar PV modules. What part of the PV module we'll get into, but... To set the stage, the solar industry is continuing to grow, yet we now have less confidence in the supply chains and also see the need to account for scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And this is for all of us everywhere. So today we are going to get one viewpoint specifically looking at North American sourced PV equipment and see that as one way to tackle these energy deployment constraints. So Martin, Thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to Helion. Thank you for having me, Joe. Um, my name is Martin Pochtaruk. I do have an accent. You know, English was the fifth language that I learned uh, when I was up um, mid twenties. Um, I'm originally from Argentina. Uh, my grandparents were immigrants. Um, on my mother's side, French. On my father's side, Ukrainian. Um, I studied physics, and I went to work uh, after six years of university into material science. I was for 20 years working on um, steel applications, mainly for the oil and gas industry. And uh, back in late 2009, founded Helion um, in Canada to... Um, if you want to offset the sins of my past, and uh, uh, you know, after working on, on on the highly polluting oil and gas and Victorian steelmaking industry, um, to make uh, solar PV modules. So we've been manufacturing since 2010. We started manufacturing around October of 2010, so up uh, close to 13 years ago. And we manufacture both in Canada and in the US. Wow. So 2010, that is a, a long time manufacturing PV modules. And I guess 2010 would have been right after the, the, it was the large stimulus package. I'm of course blanking on the name, but I think that was kind of the, the first push for a lot of new renewable energies and a lot of new companies getting into the renewable energy space. So yeah, yeah. And, and if I can provide some context, right? So in between the year 2000 and 2010, 11, uh, the European market was the only real solar market. So most of the installation was happening in between Germany, Italy, Spain, that was 80% of Europe. And outside of Europe, there was very little. Um, so most of the manufacturing, even you know what we made here in 2010, 2011, actually was exported to Europe. Um, demand in Canada then, because Ontario had the feed-in tariff, was higher than the entire U.S. altogether. Um, wow. U.S. demand didn't really started picking up until you know late 2011, 2012, and beyond. Very interesting. So I want to make sure that that our viewers have a, a good view of what the market is and and kind of I guess where where all of this is. So as a and and I want to get into you you are PV module manufacturer. You're based mm -hmm. in North America, and and you've got a lot of 
a lot of everything is U.S. focused. But when we think about the entire solar market, I want to yes. understand the whole solar market. So how big is solar worldwide? And then also how big is the North American market? I'll start with the last question. So the U.S. Okay. Uh, in 2023, just to, to make context, right? The U.S. in 2023 is going to be as a, a, a demand, um, let's say nobody knows, but let's say in the range of 25, 26 and up to 30,000 megawatts, you know, 25 to 30 gigawatts of demand, the world is 10 times that. So roughly U.S. demand is 10%, again, roughly, maybe eight and a half or 10.7, but let's say in, 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 in an approximation is 10% of global demand. So it's not the largest market. China is not only the largest market for production, but it's the largest market for consumption. So um, then, you know, uh, uh, little countries like Belgium, right, that fits inside of Rhode Island, have uh, three, four gigawatts of consumption of demand per year. So Europe continues to be um, a main driver. So geopolitics um, is playing a role. Um, the invasion of Ukraine uh, has accelerated the transition um, to being independent from other jurisdictions for, for energy for Europe. That is their you know, driver. Um, driver in some provinces in Canada, uh, even if small, is motivated by shutting down coal power generation, for example. Um, and in the U.S., as a good capitalist market, the economics of it um, uh, tell the story, right? So when look, we look at quarter by quarter, what is the new power generation installed in the U.S.? And there's very good stats on that going back, you know, 10 years. Right now, solar is more than 50%. So 50% of what is installed in a quarter, more than that, more than 50% of the new installation is solar. Of course, within the country, we have a fleet of power generation that is over 100 years old because there's hydro dams that were built more than 100 years ago and continue to produce. So in, in talking about a trend, when we look at you know, solar power generation on a quarter 10 years ago, Natural gas was more than 50%. And solar might have been, you know, 10, 8, 7, 8, 10. We look at 2015, 2017, solar was in the 30 to 35%, and it's already more than half. So what this trend is showing is that going forward, with all new power generation being solar in more than 50% of it, right, when when the international energy agency is saying you know by 2050 solar will account for more than half of the power generation in the entire planet well we're certainly going towards that yeah yeah so when you say 30 gigawatts of of solar that is 30 gigawatts of new solar new, that is exactly getting that installed. is the yearly demand that we're we'll wow. see more or less right plus minus five percent that is the estimation but what I can see for the consulting firm for um, 2023. Okay. Now, 30 gigawatts, that seems like a lot, especially when we're selling it at a, an individual panel that you put on your house is on the order of, I think, what's the, the highest? Maybe 400 watts. Well, the the so. residential would say is 400, then the, the commercial is around 550. Okay. Lots so we've got, panel. we have a lot of panels to get up to that 30 gigawatts each year. How many of those panels are manufactured and supplied by, I guess, g in general, the North American supply chain? Yes. Again, if I refer to um, Wood Mackenzie's market intelligence information, um, Anybody that is interested can go to the Solar Energy Industry Association website, C 
SEIA.org, S-E-I-A.org. Go to resources, and within resources, you'll see there's a lot of you know public, free, accessible information. With McKenzie estimates uh, that the production of both thin film and crystalline, and we can you know, explain a bit more on what those two products are, in the US is roughly 8.5 gigawatts on a yearly basis, not all of it is is used 100%. There's you know efficiency and, and um, that is accessible. So that's the capacity. So let's say there's six gigawatts that are being produced in the US. Six out of thirty. Wow. So there's a lot and of imports, right? So imports yeah. play a very strong role in how demand is being supplied. Yeah. I think the the next obvious question is, why don't we produce more? Well, slowly is happening, right? So when you look at where were we, you know, we said eight and a half gigawatts of production capacity estimated actual in 2023. When you look at the same number back in 2018, five years ago, was less than half of that, was under three gigawatts. So it is growing um, slowly but surely. Um, there are, uh, as I'm sure we will talk about, many steps within the supply chain. But when we go into the module manufacturing, the assembly of modules that are installed for power generation, uh, we are at eight and a half. And again, you know, we were under three five years ago. Wow. Yeah, that that's great growth. And I would I would hope or assume that. I would assume and hope that we are continuing that trajectory. I always struggle with that word. I don't know why I don't practice it more. Tell me about this. Is it it like what in the English (laughs) language? I wouldn't know. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we, we are working our way there to increase that amount. What are the, I guess, what are the the key factors as to why we were producing less before? Yes. So, you know, like every industry, you need to have demand to generate supply. Again, we live in a capitalist society where you know, products are sold competing with others, which is, is great. That's the way our economy uh, uh, strives. Um, demand um, five, six years ago, the U.S., you know, we're saying we're going to reach 30 gigawatts this year, was in the 15 to 18 gigawatts. So proportionally speaking, I think we're, we're producing more than they were producing now. Um, but now, um, since the end of August 2022, there is an industrial policy that was um, um, you know, prepared and, and issued by the federal administration to incentive the investment towards the manufacturing of many products. I mean, uh, solar power generation in particular within clean technologies. So when we look at what at some point was called the Build Back Better Act, that was, you know, reshuffled throughout 2023. That was in, in late 2022. Um, when we came into 2023, um, that was reshuffled, as I was saying, into the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act maintained the industrial policy that was originally um, uh, proposed and then incorporated into the Inflation Reduction Act by Georgia's Senator Ossoff. So the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act, right, became a constituent part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And that industrial policy talks about incentivizing manufacturing for wind, solar, biomass, all of the clean tech-related power generation technologies, um, and some of the components that for example, the, the polymers that are laminated um, for solar module use, um, those are incentivized 
to be done in the U.S. So many countries have had industrial um, uh, incentive policies. You know, the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., I mean, the, the more known ones uh, for for the old folks like myself is what came after the Second World War. Um, and, you know, that is what made the U.S. Uh, the powerhouse that it is, right? The ability to to have, to be independent uh, and to manufacture um, the, the products that demands um, internally or, you know, within um, um, the frame of the um, allies, right? So we, we hear about shoring, reshoring in case there's an industry that we're bringing back or friend shoring, which is, you know, working with allies um, to uh, ensure that there is enough supply of any product that is considered, you know, a, a constituent within the, the, the national security requirements. Yeah, I think everything you're saying there really really makes sense and and definitely right now i think we can all relate to it because one being in the coming from the oil and gas industry and and many of the listeners in the oil and gas industry are are cognizant of that ebb and flow and the supply and demand and how that impacts kind of long-term job security mm-hmm. and and now we're seeing that today with with energy security and wanting to have the clean, abundant, reliable energy, but seeing the impacts of something like COVID and closing up manufacturing across the world and not being able to get supplies or get materials. And then also things like the war in Ukraine and seeing how that impacts a, a local infrastructure and then also how that impacts all of the supply chains and where we are sending resources so mm-hmm. that people can have secure, abundant, safe life. And we can see all of that right now and why there's a need to have, for lack of a better term, homegrown PV cells and modules so that yes. we can continue on that 30 gigawatt trajectory. And, um, you know, over the years, um, uh, regionalization um, was the name of the game and what the world moved towards, right? And it was a result of the post-Second World War, Cold War era, um, you know, in the 90s, um, um, we moved towards um, um, a globalization. And, you know, you might remember uh, books in the late 90s uh, of the type of um, uh, the world is flat, right? That talk about you know, globalization and how uh, nobody needed, uh, that was the view of the late 90s, nobody needed to have anything on their own because basically the globe, the, the globe was flat so you could get anything from anyone um and i would say you mentioned COVID was the first wake-up call and and that uh, was happening in eastern europe right now uh is another and, and and you know as, as humans we we generally don't see what's happening next door but we have a lot of clarity of what is happening you know far enough um particularly because i mean the, the media uh, chooses to uh um, uh, exacerbate those cases to make a point. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess now we are recognizing that there is, there is a need for that regionalization and for focusing in. So I want to talk about now Hellion and, and how you are, are doing that. So what Mm -hmm. are some of those, what are the, parts that you manufacture and how are you helping build up new manufacturing capacity here, here in North America? So when you look at, you know, what is a solar module, right? The solar module, think of it as a glorified window, right? It's a, it's a piece of glass um, that has uh, an aluminum frame 
similar to a standard window, sorry, there's barking in the background. Um, and uh, um, what the difference is um, on a solar module is that it contains crystals that are solar cells that transform photons light into electrons. And those electrons are taken out through a circuitry um, out of the module and into, you know, cables and, and, and in aggregate the solar system. So what we use, again, is a, a sheet of glass for every module, 132, 144, or 156 solar cells, half cells. You know, so we can think of it as 60, 72, or 78, but you know, we laser cut them in two. Um, we call them ribbons, but basically because they are a millimeter uh, wide, but those are the the wires, let's call them, that we constitute that circuitry, and those are soldered at very high speed by robots. And then there are polymers that will ensure that those cells and that circuitry doesn't short, electrically short, um, and that those will be encapsulated through, you know, a, a very large moving oven. Um, imagine when, you know, you laminate uh, your ID when, you know, you go to, to get your driver license and it's laminated. So all of those components are laminated together to ensure that there's no air, there's no access to, to humidity um, uh, through a process. And then there's several, there's five, quality control processes happening at a very high speed. We produce roughly in a manufacturing line, a solar module every 24 seconds. So the piece of glass enters at the beginning of the process. It will take roughly four hours until it gets out because there is a curing process in the middle in a you know, slow moving um, temperature control, humidity control oven. But there is one of them coming out of the line, you know, two a minute, let's say, one every 24 seconds. So those components are made in different places in the planet. China producing over 75% of the world supply um, has, of course, all of them. Then we can, you know, go product by product. Let's say, for example, glass. Is mainly produced in China. It's also produced in Malaysia, in India, in um, Germany, and nowhere else. So we had, we used to have solar glass manufacturing in the U.S. There was a factory in Tennessee. There was another one in Wisconsin. Those lines were stopped and dismantled um, six to eight years ago, mainly because those lines needed capital expenditure to, to improve, renovate, and increase efficiency. Um, and that didn't happen, so those lines were shut down. Um, so glass right now comes from those countries. There is no other sources. Glass for solar is very particular because it contains no, no iron. So the specification for solar glass uh, requires no iron because if it has atoms of iron, those atoms will capture the light uh, instead of going into the solar cell to become electricity. So that requirement uh, is a must. Right now, there is one, pro one project to establish a manufacturing line for solar glass in Canada, in the province of Manitoba, which is in the middle of Canada, just north of uh, Fargo, uh, North Dakota, just you know, really close, right on the border with the U.S. That is the only integrated uh, factory that is planned to be built. Um, and when it does, right, it will allow us not to be transporting glass from the other side of the planet. So glass has a very strong, very high carbon footprint. Then we move into the polymers. There is two types. There is an encapsulant that is placed within the module. There is one company in the U.S. right now manufacturing it. It's called HB Fueler. It's Minneapolis-based. 
They have several factories in the country. The largest one in Ohio. They are our supplier. There is another company coming uh, from India. There's a very large, very strong polymers manufacturing chemicals company in India that is setting up a factory in Austin, Texas. That line will be ready to produce um, at the end of October or early November of 2023 uh, to supply you know, the rapidly growing demand of manufacturers like us. Um, aluminum frames are quite uh, an interesting commodity. Uh, aluminum, similar to steel in the US, similar in Canada, they're highly protected industries. And by that, I mean protected under the, the Trade Act of 1930. Um, extrusions from China are um, uh, taxed with an anti-dumping and countervailing duty. So um, that product uh, in the U.S. in particular is a bit more expensive, more costly than in other countries. In our case, we were able to convince our Canadian manufacturer based in Montreal to um, manufacture frames for us our extrusion is particular and is different. So it's our own IP in Wisconsin. So we have US-made frames. We have US-made encapsulants, as I was saying. And then for backsheet, there is a company in New Hampshire. They're called Warden Industries. And Warden Industries does produce backsheet in the US. They have you know, purchased other companies that used to do that. One was called Marigo uh, in Massachusetts back in, in 2017. Um, plus they have you know, other products so they've been manufacturing in, in China in particular for many years and they're bringing a factory back to the US so that, that is, is being reshored so slowly but little by, by you know one step at a time uh, the reshoring is happening mm -hmm. there is other products that we need when, when you look at that window the glass and the frame are sealed together that sealant is an automotive grade sealant um, that um, AB, uh, HB Fueler, the, the Minneapolis based company, is starting to manufacture in Michigan um, this fall. So, right now, the product is imported. It will not be imported anymore come September or October. Um, even, you know, something very simple, it looks like a scotch tape, it's a 3M product. Um, that a robot, you know, places on the strings so that they don't they don't move during the lamination process. That particular high transparency uh, tape is not made in the U.S. Even if 3M is based in Minneapolis. Wow. So, so it sounds like there there's a lot of components that are are U.S. based and a lot more coming, but. There is also that aspect of not only the smaller companies that are that have their focus and their their goals and 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 initiatives, but then we also have to talk to larger companies like 3M and and companies that have this international footprint and a worldwide. They are part of the worldwide ecosystem and and global global supply chain. We also have to convince them to supply individual pieces and components that are U.S. manufactured. It sounds like a right. a a lot of moving parts and a lot of a lot of difficulties in some ways. But correct. But you pointed out earlier the Inflation Reduction Act and how that has has been almost the impetus for many of these manufacturing incentives for us-based products have have you all seen a at least from your side opportunity and growth occurring either because of the ira or just in general the demand that you see in the u.s solar industry i would say it's a bit of both <clears throat> so the demand generally produces the interest in manufacturing and in supplying the advantage of having an industrial policy, right, the, the solar energy manufacturing for America, Senator Ossoff's SEMA industrial policy into the Inflation Reduction Act, what provides is an actual better payback for those investments to happen. So 
is a bit of action and reaction. So when 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 an industry has visibility, right? So the Inflation Reduction Act, as as we all, you know, it's good to, as a reminder, uh, sets this this um, um, the Inflation Reduction Act related incentives all the way to 2032. Um, they start to dwindle down, you know, a couple of years before that. But let's say it provides certainty of uh, industrial policy for that period of time. So you have visibility, point one. The second one is because of the incentives to power generation, not manufacturing, but for power generation. Power generation has certainty and visibility, so that is growing. So demand will continue to grow. So you have a growing demand, visibility on a period of time. Uh, there's incentive, uh, a tax rate incentive for manufacturing. All of that creates the necessary environment for lenders to to provide financing for these activities and for investors and entrepreneurs to basically go ahead with it. So, you know, one in the products that we mentioned, I didn't mention solar cells. Solar cells today are 100% imported in the U.S. There's nobody, absolutely nobody, making solar cells in the U.S. today. Wow. Without solar cells, you cannot have a solar module, right? Um, so they, there are different parties looking into manufacturing solar cells. We are looking into manufacturing solar cells for our own demand so that, you know, in two years we don't need to import anymore. Um, and we are considering also working with others on that. But the moment you make solar cells, you need to buy the input into making solar cells. Those are called wafers. So if, if we just for, for reference talk about the process, we start with sand, with polysilicon and quartz. Um, that is basically melted and pulled in a crystallization process um, to, to make an ingot, monocrystalline ingot. So that's, you know, quite low speed, high uh, power intensity process. Then you have a, an ingot, let's say it looks like a column, and you slice it into very thin 140 to 170 micron thin wafers. And that wafer then goes through uh, mainly chemical processing uh, of baths and, 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 um, um, you know, it's, it's all uh, happens at very high speed and at different temperatures. So the, that wafer will be submitted to to chemicals um, through a, a process and printing um, to become a solar cell. So in our case, we're working on setting up is a very large capital expenditure to manufacture cells for ourselves. And we are reliant on other parties that, will make the ingots and will slice the wafers. So today we were saying, you know, through this conversation that roughly 75% of the solar models made in the planet are made in China, 25% as were. When we look at wafers, uh, wafers are even in higher concentration, 95, 96% of the wafers sliced in the planet are in China. So wow. shoring, reshoring, bringing the French shoring, bringing the wafer slicing, the ingot pooling and wafer slicing to the U.S. Uh, is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you, there are, yourself included, bringing and reshoring all of these different components and, and one that is very supply chain constrained, that being the wafers, also developing a way to do that in the US, which is is exciting. I I don't have a good lead up to this question, so I'm just gonna ask it, but mm-hmm. what what do you need to get these up and running? Like what are what are the things that that we need to put in place in order to develop these projects 
manufacturing lines, whatever, I guess, what's needed? So, you know, the, again, we're in a capitalist society. So the first thing that is needed is money. (laughs) So we always start there. So again, the conditions for, for paying that back are good. So even if there's a lot of work to, to obtain that financing, uh, is possible. And in other moments in history was not. So that we start with that. Then the, the technology is accessible. <clears throat> you know, we can buy it. We need to import it. So there's no know-how in the US. So in our case, for example, uh, we have hired um, a German um, EPC to help us with the design and vetting of equipment uh, on what it would be the bankability of the offer to be able to finance it. Um, However, we will need local engineering companies to build it. Uh, The Germans in our case will work as the owner's engineer uh, in the assessment of of the, the necessary construction. So we'll need permitting we need buildings. We will lease buildings. We don't own buildings. So coming back to your question, we need access to engineering resources uh, and a lot of hiring, right? So um, the the equipment can be purchased. However, we'll need to be able to hire and train um, internationally in many cases um, you need to bring people to other countries to to familiarize familiarize themselves with the equipment, right? When I think back of, no. of an example, back in 2010 when we started making solar modules in Canada, at that moment we had a factory in Spain in Barcelona, and we brought Canadian employees to Spain to train on the equipment to uh, uh, to come to Canada. When we started the manufacturing line in Minnesota. Um, the new line in 2018, we brought our Minnesota employees to Canada to train, and then train. The, the, they became the trainers of the rest of the employees, and so on. So nobody has that technology today. I would say nowadays everybody talks. Different industries, restaurants cannot find employees to run their kitchens and serve the tables. Um, you know. We are not different to that. So uh, uh, working on shifts on factories, which is what, you know, made the U.S. the country that it is back in the, you know, since the the, uh, Industrial Revolution, I would say, to this day, um, is something that today is not really fashionable. So working on shifts um, is not something that, as many people as before uh, were looking for. So we need to be creative. There's a lot of automation to minimize the number of people that that we need to employ, but we still need, I mean, for example, every manufacturing line for modules we have uh, requires 25 people, 24 operations, two supervisors, and three in maintenance. So at every hour of the day, 24 hours a day, you need to have 25 people standing there doing what yeah. needs to be done. So that means that Alan, sorry about that, um, will need 120 to 130 people and Align is 500 max. So multiply that as, as many lines that we have and everybody has. We're talking about many thousands of manufacturing jobs. Yeah. So yeah. people, I would say, is is what keeps me, you know, and the ability to hire, the ability to retain is what really keeps me awake at night, um, because it's it's quite a challenge. Yeah, it sounds like a a challenge, and the I like the fact that you pointed out the need for training. So this is not mm-hmm. this is not just hiring somebody to sweep the floor. This is skilled labor. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to the training. And then there's a cost when that person decides to leave. So I I like the fact that you pointed out the, it's not just about finding those warm bodies to, to fill the shop. It is hiring them and finding a way to keep them there because keeping them there is, is ultimately going to 
keep production up and it's going to also lower the it's going to lower the overhead because you don't have to train as many people with that turnover oh that's right and and also you know the the i'm old so when when i was younger you know it was you had electrical engineers electronics engineers mechanical engineers now you know we call there is a a a hybrid of that and we call them mechatronics right so those are the type of engineers that we look for and it does you know people with experience right when you used to to read you know engineer with x number of, of years of opinions required well we don't even say that because we know there is nobody so for for these specialties and particularly automation right what what we are doing and everybody should do is actually go to the engineering schools and you know promote what you require among the students coming up uh for graduation and hire young and form right and 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 train from a very early age um what eventually will be your experienced engineers so uh, yeah. uh, we have the, that dual requirement. We need people for operations, those more than anything, and train on the job. And we need engineers with know-how in software, in 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 uh, um, in automation, uh, in electrical engineering, in mechanical engineering. Um, that then will apply their know-how to the particular equipment that they need to work with. Yeah. That is, it's interesting to hear about. And, and I, for one, get excited sitting here talking about these job opportunities and, and hearing the, the whole idea of on the job training and hiring young and training into this new field and, and how that automation would work and how you would see these manufacturing facilities grow. It's just, it's exciting to see and and exciting to talk about how this is this really is a direct result of growth in the solar market and solar market demand and i think it'll continue to grow and and i hope it continues to grow with with your new plants and and bringing more more of the supply chain onshore you know when when i started uh working right my my first uh job was on um, fracture mechanics and working on the propagation of fracture on line mm. pipe for um, uh, gas transmission in the Arctic at high pressure. What did I know about that? Nothing, right? But again, I was thrown in, right? I didn't know what a line pipe was. I didn't know what transportation of gas was. And I had to learn, right? And and I, I learned and I worked with, with the client, right? Um, uh, to design a product that would withstand the high pressure at minus 40 degrees uh, centigrade. So our industry is not different. We have, um, um, you know, referring to, to renewables and solar in particular, right? So there are highly nerdy technical issues. There are, uh, you know, daily, you know, mechanical and electrical challenges of equipment. When something fails, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a that's a good spot to transition into the final questions because I, I think that seeing that tie in is always fun, and now I get to tie this into all of my podcasts with these these questions that I ask all of my guests. So, starting into those final questions, that first question is: What is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? You know, I, I uh, um, because I, I'm, I mean, in a very nerdy um, um, technical environment, I read fiction. So uh, uh, one of the the uh, uh, American authors that I've been following for many many years is called Daniel Silva. He's Massachusetts based, um, and these are you know intrigue spy type of stories. So. Uh, uh, that is is an author, uh, and again, I don't remember the names of the books. I'm very sorry. I'm very bad for names, but that's an author that I follow. Um, then, um, you know, John Le Carré and and all of his uh, uh, spy history books. I find that 
um, reading it is very dense and my, many people might find it boring. So for that reason, I would recommend going into the audiobooks. So uh, uh, if you yeah. find a narrator that actually you know picks your ear, uh, that makes it more interesting than not. I, I moved out of paper books years ago, went into the the um, um, you know iPad, and then I you know I realized that it was in front of the screen. 16 hours a day, so I I went away from reading on screen and into audiobook, so I could you know be walking or doing something else and and listening to a book, particularly when traveling. Yeah, those are good recommendations. I'm always looking for good fiction recommendations because, like you, I if I am not working on writing some report or writing some type of proposal for work, I am reading them or reading very technical papers. So it, it's always good to get away. And I, yeah. I completely agree. This is the first year that I've really dove into audiobooks, And this mm -hmm. is the most I've read since college. So yeah, it is for great that, to, for that reason, to get exactly. in there. And also the, the, uh, uh, um, uh, for years before um, Audible, Right, I was I was a member of of the you know uh, Ontario the provincial libraries and you can you were able to download a book and you had it for twenty days but then you know because of work the the, the book disappeared and I hadn't finished so what I find with you know um, things like Audible is that you can download it and and then it's yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. So those fiction writers and also audible if people can't find time to read now the next question how will we get to net zero yeah um so the, the first part as a, as a person right and as a, as a uh, consumer of articles and uh, uh driving a car and all of those good things um uh, the first thing is uh minimizing our own consumption. So what do we do to be more efficient? So efficiency is the first step. Um, you know, individually as industries, um, minimize what our carbon footprint is, is the most important one so that we don't continue increasing. Therefore, going down is easier if you, you're not battling the possible increase. And the second one, you know, I would say, is self-generate as much as we all can, whether it is um, because we buy power that is produced in a clean way or we produce our own. Electrification. Right. Electrification, for sure, is the name of the game. All right. Yeah, those are those are two, uh, two great ideas. And, and I like that because those are two things that everybody can do. We can find ways to minimize our own personal life. We all, or maybe we all can find a way to self-generate, whether that is walking or riding a bike so that we're, mm -hmm. we're using our own power. Or if we own a house or own a space where we can utilize roof space, we can generate power that Correct. way. Very very good recommendations. Now, the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question. What are you looking for to to bring to your audience when when you choose a subject? And you know, have I done a really bad job or a or a, an okay job covering your expectation? Yes. Well, if this is a, a shameless plug. Make sure you subscribe and listen to the podcast because if I never publish your show, that means you've done a bad job. Your show is probably going to go out next week though. So, so yes, you did a good job. What I am looking for, and this is for anybody who is interested in, in being on the show or who's an entrepreneur or somebody working in, in energy. What I'm looking for is is education trying to bring education to people who who may not know a a part of the industry 
And then also entertainment, hearing your personal story and hearing transfer of knowledge like you shared and, and examples from across the industry of where we don't know the solution or where we've lost the technical understanding and how we're going and getting it. So those are two things that you hit on perfectly, Martin. And then also the 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 larger overarching question that I that I now try to answer is this. How do we provide reliable, abundant, resilient, and clean energy while also seeing a, a, an abundant, fruitful future? That being something that, that has the energy, that has our, our current creature comforts, our current lifestyle, and how do we spread that worldwide? Because we are in this in this weird transitionary phase. I know energy itself, people are, are changing the definition of energy transition. But I think where we are right now is we are in a transition of we need more energy, but we also see we need more energy and we need it to spread worldwide. But we also do see a need to be an active participant in conservation and in climate change and understanding the science of of the global dynamics of energy and supply chain and food and and all of it uh, absolutely and that's why i brought up you know conservation and and, and efficiency as the first uh, required step yeah yep absolutely and i think those are those are absolutely good steps so, Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign thank off, is there, yeah, absolutely. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, no. I mean, this was a, a fun uh, interview. And again, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yep, absolutely. Thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some from OGGN. Go to my show notes and find the one question survey link. If you go and fill that out, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is ets at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, you can find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.